This is VLX number 59, The Harvest is Plentiful. We are in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. God give you his peace, and nomine patris affidit, spiritus santi, amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patris affidit, spiritus santi, amen. Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. We are just at the end of Matthew chapter 9, and I want to give you a little bit of an overview so you know where we're going. There are three parts of Matthew's Gospel. Obviously, there's 28 chapters, but there's three major parts of Matthew's Gospel. The first part is from the incarnation of our Lord through his first year in active ministry. The second part is his second part of active ministry, and the third part is the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Well, we are just at the end. We're just at the threshold between part one and part two. Now, in part one, the only parts in there that actually belong later is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That doesn't overturn any of the inerrancy of Scripture to insist that this was done at a different time. It's just like a movie with a flashback, or in this case, a flash-forward, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. In fact, in some sense, in a movie, um, that's highlighting that much more how real it is. And Father Lapide, who wrote in the 17th century, who doubles down on the inerrancy of Scripture all the time, says the same thing. He says right here, apropos Jansen concludes here, the first part of his concordance, it is true, nevertheless, that Matthew has inserted here as chapters 5, 6, 7, and the beginning of chapter 9, Christ's Sermon on the Mount, which was preached later, and several miracles with which Christ confirmed his teaching, such as the healing of the centurion's servant and the cure of the leper. But far and away, what he's saying is all of what we've seen so far is chronological, except for that one fast forward. And so again, there's three parts of Matthew's gospel, and Father Lapide puts these three parts into the Passovers of Christ's life. Very interesting. He says, here ends, by here ends, he means the end of Matthew 9, where we are right here, Here ends the account of Christ's childhood, chapters 1 and 2, and of his acts from his baptism and the first Passover of his public life until the second Passover, that is to say, the history of one year and some months. This was the 31st year of Christ's age. So here we are at the end of Jesus' first year of ministry. As I said on an earlier VLX, he's about to hand over the reins of his kingdom to the apostles, but he's still the main one doing all the miracles right now and he's just 31 years old. So Jesus has been working a lot of individual miracles up to this point, probably with the crowds around him or in the distance or following closely. But today we actually hear a description with adjectives of the crowd that's following him. The DRB, the Dewey Rhymes Bible, describes this crowd following him as distressed and lying. But the ESV and the NIV both use the same terms directly from the Greek, which is harassed and helpless. Probably all those are fine, but we're just going to go with the preponderance of evidence there directly from the Greek, harassed and helpless. So our Lord looks out 
And he sees these crowds as harassed and helpless. I would say harassed by demons and helpless before the Jewish hierarchy who was doing nothing to help them at all. Father Lapide mentions the shepherds here in his own book. He says that the shepherds for the people were wolves, for in word they taught them false and perverse doctrines, and by their example they ruined the souls of the simple ones, especially when they called Christ a magician and so turned away from him the minds of those who were well disposed to him. So here he says the false shepherds are those who teach perverse doctrines. So to be honest, um, I felt really harassed and helpless the past few years of my priesthood. And this is hard to say, but I've almost been frustrated with God. Maybe not for smiting me so much, but at least not for protecting me. But I want to tell you the fruit of my prayer, my own mental prayer that I was doing on this section this week. And here's what came to me. I realized that in my own mental prayer, Jesus was looking at me as being harassed and helpless. And not only is he not smiting me, it's not even like he's saying, hey kid, well, this is for your sins. Or maybe even, hey kid, this is what's good for you. Maybe a little bit closer to that. But he's watching all of our lives, as it said today, he had compassion for them. He's watching us with compassion, not with a grin. And that might sound kind of obvious, but this shows Christ's saving mission is why he came to save us lost sheep who are always getting tricked and harassed by demons and in certain times in Christian history do not have the help of the shepherds. And Jesus sees these very shepherds he sent are actually wolves to his own sheep. These were the Jewish hierarchy that he, the creator of the universe, had made and they're not fulfilling their duty. But the news gets better here. The bad shepherds don't have the last word. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think of our Lord looking at a billion Catholics, two billion Christians on the planet, with so much doctrinal confusion, people can't even agree if it's night, and he looks upon us with compassion right now in the 21st century. So he has compassion on the crowds, and the word for compassion in Greek there is esplagniste, esplagniste. Now, I had always personally translated that word at least what's in the middle of that word right there as guts, like your intestines. I noticed the word intestines is in the middle of that word mercy in Greek. You know, like, I hate your guts or I love your guts in this case. But that word has right in the middle of compassion guts. Well, was I right about this? I was a little bit afraid to say that on the series because I thought it sounded a little bit informal for our Lord. But then I see Father Lapide translates it the same as me. Or maybe I should say I translated it the same as Father Lapide. In Greek, again, esplagniste is translated by Father Lapide in the year 1600 as pitied them from his inmost bowels. Christ pitied them from his inmost bowels. So Jesus isn't watching the troubles of those he loves, those he created, just kind of like grinning. He sees we are all sheep without a shepherd right now, harassed by demons. And he's moved to a compassion so deep, it's all the way to his inmost bowels. That's what the Greek is telling us there. Imagine feeling so much compassion for a suffering person, you feel it way, way deep down in your guts. It's kind of how I feel looking at trafficked kids when I study all this and read about it. Um, But Christ feels this for just basic people like you and me too. Now that's not to say that he's not using all the stuff we're going through to toughen us up. 
In fact, maybe we could say it's precisely his mercy that gives us the strength to muscle through 2021 and live as his courageous sons and daughters. Someone on the phone was telling me today, he was reading about what St. Alphonsus Liguori said about St. Boniface. St. Boniface was the English bishop who came to Germany before Germany was Christian at all. And they were so mad at what he was saying, they were sticking nails under his fingernails. And he, says, he said something like, is that all you got? And they were so mad at him, they cut off his head, just as he had cut down that tree, the pagan tree right there. Well, speaking of bishops like St. Boniface, Jesus wanted to be reproduced, so to speak, in people like St. Boniface, who were going to be his new shepherds, that is to say, his apostles and his bishops. Christ wanted this gut-wrenching compassion multiplied in real shepherds for his harassed sheep. Father Lapide writes this right here. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he send forth labors into his harvest, meaning that he would send you, O apostles, and your co-judors and successors, namely apostolic men, and supply and inspire them with the wisdom, courage, and zeal to preach and to labor assiduously in such a great harvest of souls. And what are these great workers in this great harvest supposed to be doing? Well, let's look at that harvest. It's an abundant harvest, our Lord says, but to whom does it belong? Does it belong to those apostles? Listen closely. The harvest is plentiful, our Lord says, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So that word his is in the Greek there too. So it's his harvest and it's his sheep and it's also his shepherds who he's going to send out there. And it's also he who's sending them so that they can come back to him to heaven. So his harvest means it is Christ's harvest. Father Lapide has a beautiful meditation on this. He says, thus tacitly Christ calls himself for he is the church's Lord. Not only as God, for in this way, God the Father and the Holy Spirit also are Lord, but even as man, for as man he redeemed and purchased her by his blood. Therefore, it belongs to him to send out the apostles as laborers who reap this harvest by their toil and sweat and gather it into the storehouse of the church. And so, in fact, he does send out the apostles. Therefore, he himself should be called on to send out energetic, tireless workers into this harvest, which is whitening in many places or is ripe. Hence, St. John Chrysostom says, this shows, for, this shows first that it is a great gift to preach correctly, since he says that one should pray for this. Secondly, he openly manifests himself as Lord, for he sent the apostles to reap what he himself had sown in the prophets. End quote. So it's interesting that the prophets were the ones who initially sowed all of this, but then this is reaped in who? In the Jews? No, first in the Gentiles. We talked about this before. Um, Father Lapide quotes St. Augustine saying, quote, The apostles indeed reaped among the Jews, but sowed among the Gentiles because they delivered to them the first doctrines of the faith, as it were, seed. End quote. But now let's look at that word send. I think this would be a good launching point for both those doing the study way of prayer and the imaginative way of prayer. Now we talked about this word before, send. Now if you remember, it's ekbalo in the Greek. And I proved in a previous VLX that a very accurate translation of it is eject, as in Jesus ejected demons. Okay, well what does eject have to do with send? Well, it's the same word there, it's the same verb. Now, what is weird today is that he's using that same term for the apostles getting ejected into the world. Let's look at that word ekbalo. 
I'm going to read you Strong's definition for ekbalo. To cast out, drive out, to send out, with notion of violence, to drive out, cast out, to cast out of the world, to be deprived of the power and influence of the exercises of the world, to expel a person from a society, to banish from a family, to compel one to depart, to bid one depart in stern though nonviolent language, so employed that the rapid motion of the one going is transferred to the one sending forth. So that's ekbalo. Ek is where we get ex outside of balo. Let me give you the definition of just balo all by itself right there. Balo is defined in Strong's as to throw or let go of a thing without caring where it falls, to scatter, to throw, cast into, to give over to one's care, uncertain about the results. So balo is to throw, ek means out. So ek balo is to throw out. So our Lord is throwing out these apostles into the world. Very interesting, very uh, vivid description in the Greek there. So you can picture this. There are, I guess the getting thrown out into would be injected. So our Lord's injecting the apostles into the world. That's probably the best Greek translation I would give you there. He's injecting into the world these apostles. And they're getting sent everywhere while demons are also getting sent everywhere by Satan, harassing people in every nation, every culture, every continent. And this, of course, reminds me of the two standards of St. Ignatius of Loyola, which we'll get to in a minute. So remember, in the two standards of St. Ignatius of Loyola, this means the two flags. And in Israel, you have this one flag where our Lord is standing, surrounded by all of his saints. And then a thousand miles away in Babylon, you have Satan seated on his throne, surrounded by demons. And it's this giant war. But really, this is bigger than just, say, an enormous football field that spans from Israel to Bat to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, really Ignatius asks us to also consider the entire planet. Um, every single continent has people affected by demons, and so also Jesus wants to send apostles to all of these places. So if you're doing the imaginative way of prayer, I might actually have you um, meditate on the saints today. Picture St. Peter Claver getting sent to Colombia, where he baptized 300,000 slaves coming off the ships. Picture Junipero Serra getting sent to Mexico and California. Or you could see in your mind's eye St. Ignatius, St. Isaac Joe getting sent to upstate New York. Blessed Jose Anchieta going to Brazil. Or way back, St. Thomas the Apostle getting sent to India. You have St. Francis Xavier getting sent to Japan. All the way back to the 6th or 7th century, we have St. Patrick getting sent to the Irish. As I mentioned earlier, St. Boniface sent to the Germans. Way back to the first century, the friends of our Lord, St. Lazarus and St. Mary Magdalene getting sent to the French people, the Gauls. Of course, we have St. Augustine of Canterbury getting sent to the English. These are all part of the two standards. You can picture all of these saints under this flag with Christ, squaring off with Satan seated. Remember, Satan is seated because he's arrogant where our Lord stands to fight for his people. Satan is seated over there. And now, if you're just doing the study way of prayer, I suppose you can probably turn it off now. But if you're going to continue in the imaginative way of prayer, I'd encourage you to do the two standards again, even though we did it a couple months ago. I will read it directly from St. Ignatius of Loyola if you'd like to bring this to your prayer. I think your kids will be pretty good at this, especially boys. Boys love to play war in their brains. And this is truly a big spiritual war. Fourth day, a meditation on two standards. The one of Christ, our supreme leader and Lord. The other, Lucifer, the deadly enemy of our human nature. Prayer, the usual preparatory prayer. We prayed that at the beginning of today's VLX. The first prelude, this is the history. 
Here it will be that Christ calls and wants all beneath his standard, and Lucifer, on the other hand, wants all under his. The second prelude, this is a mental representation of the place. It will be here to see a great plain, comprising the whole region about Jerusalem, where the sovereign commander-in-chief of all the good is Christ our Lord, and another plain about the region of Babylon, where the chief of the enemy is Lucifer. Third prelude, this is to ask for what I desire. Here it will be to ask for a knowledge of the deceits of the rebel chief and help to guard myself against them, and also to ask for a knowledge of the true life exemplified in the sovereign and true commander and the grace to imitate him. The first part, the standard of Satan, first point. Imagine you see the chief of all the enemy in the vast plain about Babylon seated on a great throne of fire and smoke, his appearance inspiring horror and terror. The second point, consider how he summons innumerable demons and scatters them, some to one city and some to another, throughout the whole world so that no province, no place, no state of life, no individual is overlooked. Third point, consider the address he makes to them, how he goads them on to lay snares for men and bind them with chains. First, they are to tempt them to covet riches, as Satan himself is accustomed to do in most cases, that they may the more easily attain the empty honors of this world and then come to overweening pride. The first step, then, will be riches. The second, honor. The third, pride. From these three steps, the evil one leads to all other vices. The second part, the standard of Christ. In a similar way, we are to picture to ourselves the sovereign and true commander, Christ our Lord. The first point, consider Christ our Lord standing in a lowly place in a great plain about the region of Jerusalem, his appearance beautiful and attractive. Second point, consider how the Lord of all the world chooses so many persons, apostles, disciples, and sends them throughout the whole world to spread to spread his sacred doctrine among all men, no matter what their state or condition. Third point, consider the address which Christ our Lord makes to all his servants and friends whom he sends out on this enterprise, recommending to them to seek to help all, first by attracting them to the highest spiritual poverty, and should it please the divine majesty, and should he deign to choose them for it even to actual poverty. Secondly, they should lead them to a desire for insults and contempt, for from these springs humility. Hence, there will be three steps. The first, poverty as opposed to riches. The second, insults or contempt as opposed to the honor of this world. The third, humility as opposed to pride. From these three steps, let them lead men to all other virtues. Colloquy or discussion. A colloquy should be addressed to Our Lady, asking her to obtain for me from her Son and Lord the grace to be received under his standard, first in the highest spiritual poverty, and should the divine majesty be pleased thereby, and deign to choose and accept me even in actual poverty. Secondly, in bearing insults and wrongs, therefore, thereby to imitate him better, provided only I can suffer these without sin on the part of another, and without offense of the divine majesty. Then I will say the Hail Mary. And please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis. Patris et et Spiritus Sancti descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.